Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome to the second podcast in our Investing Explained podcast series. Wild stock market movements such as those seen with meme stocks last year make investing look like an exciting or treacherous roller coaster, depending on your perspective. But the truth is, successful investing should be disciplined and boring as you slowly let your money grow. Actually, I shouldn't say boring. Studying stock market movements provides a fascinating window through which you can learn about the world. In the last podcast, we talked about why investing is important and how it fits in a financial plan. Today, we're going to talk about, once you've made the decision to invest, what should you do next? With us, I'm delighted to welcome Daniela Sabin, presenter and analyst at IG, and the IC's very own funds editor, Dave Baxter. Thank you for joining us. We'll start with you, Daniela. Once you know you're ready to invest, can you give a rough idea of how much might be sensible? Of course, it entirely depends on how much you earn and what your outgoings are, but are there any rules of thumb or guidance on how much is appropriate? Hi. Well, I think it's it's definitely going to be depending on your investment needs and investment wants. Um, if you look out there for a benchmark figure, you will find them. A lot of the time you hear that 15% of your pre-tax income is probably a good starting point. Again, it, it's not necessarily a set figure. You don't have to go by that. You just have to really sit down with yourself and think, you know, what is my goal? What am I looking to achieve with investing? And from there on, you just kind of decide, right, well, I can spare this amount each month whatever percentage that may be. And that's what I'm going to start with. And you can always build your growth as you go. So it doesn't necessarily have to be investing all from the beginning in a lump sum. You can start off smaller. And then as soon as you get comfortable and confident, you can then build that up over time. So there isn't a specific figure that you have to be looking out for. There's no rule of success that if you invest so much and so more, you're going to make a certain percent return. It, it isn't like that. It's really just a case of you've got to be comfortable with investment, investing. You've got to be comfortable with how much you can spare at each time and then put that in, see how it goes. And, and you can always modify that, take it in, put it, put it in, take out and and just, you know, make your own ride. I think investing is is each person's, you know, journey and you don't really have to do what everyone else is doing. But if you are looking for that part figure, I say about 15% of your pre-tax income is usually what you hear out there. Great, thank you. And traditionally, a diversified portfolio would have consisted of equities and bonds, possibly 100% in equities if you're young and have a very long time horizon. But more and more people seem to be investing in alternative assets, notably digital assets, um, including cryptocurrencies. Daniela, what are the different types of assets you can pick between and what do you think is sensible for someone starting out? I think traditionally, if you ask, you know, any money manager, especially a traditional one, they'll say, you know, your your three big things are cash, bonds and, and, and stocks. Now, I think that's changed a lot over time as you were, you were talking about, you know, digital assets. And I think cryptocurrencies are a big part of that. And I feel like it, it's it's also going to be important to know which, at which stage of your investing period are you? Are you right at the beginning if you're mentioning? Also, what age are you when you're starting? What are your needs outside of investing? What are your needs in your day-to-day life? And and what kind of investments outside of that do you need? So I think in terms of what assets to to trade or what what markets to put it in, you have to look for 
some kind of safe investment, you always want to have some benchmark investment where you'll feel comfortable. And then if you do have that risk appetite, and I feel like that is a lot with, you know, newcomers in the market, especially young people. And I think that's where crypto and, and digital assets come in. Young people have a lot more risk appetite. And if you have a lot more risk appetite, then sure, go for those riskier assets. But you also have to take into account that um, with greater returns come greater risk usually. And it's not always the, same, the other way around. With greater risk, you don't always get greater returns. And I think that's something to keep and, you know, to keep in mind but if you're going for your traditional you know diversification and, and different assets you can invest you have your safer investments your bonds and your cash and then you have your riskier investments which are typically stocks and then also now these digital assets which do offer greater returns but they do have a lot more risk with them and you have to make sure from the beginning that you know that there is a risk involved and that potentially you won't get your return back at least not in the short term yes yeah, so it sounds like the um for someone with a long term long time horizon the majority of the portfolio will be in in equities uh, there are thousands of funds investors can pick between and even more stocks listed all over the world um, which are now available to investors at a pretty pretty low cost if you want to get started it might be easier to start with a fund dave can you talk us through what your options are and and briefly outline the pros and cons of each hi mary i certainly can so as you say, there are thousands of options out there. Um, two of the kind of very broad basis, basic options will be either active funds or passive funds. Um, so I'll start with passive funds because they are broader. Um, you're essentially getting the basic market exposure very cheaply. Um, so an exchange traded fund or an unlisted passive fund will simply track a market and give you the performance of that market. So for example, you could pick something like the FTSE 100 in the UK, the S&P 500 in the US, or the MSCI World, and it will give you that performance minus um, some very low charges. Um, these funds have tended to work really well in the last decade or so, um, especially in markets like the US. Uh, as I've alluded to, they can also be had for some really dirt cheap prices. Um, so a passive fund in an established market like the S&P 500 really should charge you less than 0.1% um, as its fee, although you will incur some other costs um, in your kind of total cost of investing. Then we move on to active. Um, I would argue that's more interesting, but definitely less predictable. Um, so there are thousands of active funds you can buy. What active means is basically the manager is actively picking stocks or other assets. They're trying to choose the best assets in order to do a certain job. Often that job is trying to outperform a market like, for example, the S&P 500 over a given time period, normally over a few years. But you do also get some active managers trying to do different things like, for example, um, limit your losses and protect your portfolio in times of equity market uh, volatility. Um, and you get other jobs like, for example, generating income. Um, active tends to be noticeably more expensive than passive. Um, but for me, the bigger thing to bear in mind is that you only really get a small proportion of active funds that consistently beat markets over decent periods of time. Um, that's especially been an issue in markets like the US, um, where a handful of stocks like Apple, for example, have led returns, and it's been very hard to kind of outmaneuver the markets. Um, so that's active and passive in a nutshell. Um, I'm going to get slightly more granular on the active front. Um, investors will hear about what's called open-ended funds and closed-ended funds. Um, so open-ended funds, you're effectively almost directly giving your money to a fund manager and they're investing it. 
And when you want to get out, you kind of sell and they have to return your money relatively quickly. That can present an issue sometimes because they need to be able to kind of um, sell assets and generate that money fairly quickly. Closed-ended funds, um, which are also called investment trusts, by contrast, um, you are buying their shares, which are traded on a secondary market. So if you sell, you're basically just selling on to another investor and the manager doesn't need to sell any of their holdings in order to give you any cash. Um, that means that investment trusts can go into some more interesting areas where it's harder to um, sell assets quickly. So, for example, property, private equity and infrastructure. Um and there are a few other things to to bear in mind. Um, so because of the um, share price dynamic, investment trusts can be a bit more volatile, um, but they can give you kind of bigger gains as well as bigger losses. Um, also, the shares can trade at different levels to the actual value of the portfolio they hold. So you get what's called discounts and premiums. So, for example, if a trust is out of favour, you can, in theory, buy a share at a price that is lower than the actual value of underlying assets. And similarly, if it's really popular, as with some infrastructure names, you may end up paying um, more than the actual value of the uh, the assets. And finally, there are a couple of other kind of complications. Um, for example, investment trusts can do something open-ended funds can't um, via borrowing to invest more. Um, that's referred to as gearing. And that can basically amplify the gains and losses you may incur. Um, so to sum it up, investment trusts are a bit more complex, perhaps a bit more volatile, but actually in many cases they can offer better returns if you are patient and pay attention. Thank you, Dave. That's a brilliant overview. Um, just to pick up on what the distinction you mentioned first between active and passive, Daniela, what's your view on whether active or passive offers better value? Well, I think Dave has given a great explanation between the difference. And I think the question of what offers or which one offers better value is probably as, as, as a tale as old as time. Um, it's a question you're always going to get a mixed reaction to. It depends who you're asking and what they do. But um, as Dave was saying, the, the whole point of having an active you know, investment is you're trying to outsmart the market or outrun the market. And when you look at the solid data of how often that happened, it doesn't happen that often. So I feel like if you're if you're balancing the cost of an active um, of an active investment uh, versus the returns that you get or the potential to, to get higher returns, sometimes it doesn't balance out. So it, it's it's hard to say which one offers higher value. I think it depends who you ask and what experience they had. I think for me. Passive is, is definitely a good way to go if you're trying to keep those costs down, if you're trying to just, you know, just have a, a simple investment strategy. I think passive is definitely the way to go. If you want to do an active investing, then you've got to make sure that you do your research. If you're not doing it yourself, that, you you know, you research someone that has got at least a plan in place as to how they're going to deliver this active return. Obviously, stock markets and markets in general are unpredictable and we can't, you know, we can never predict what's going to happen in the future. But I think the key of active investment is, is having a plan and and having you know some sort of experience in knowing how to potentially offer a greater return than a passive investment but it does have a greater cost so it's just outweighing you know what are your costs and and, and whether you're willing to you know take those costs up front for the potentially little proven uh benefits that active can give you over passive investments thank you and dave um in the context of setting up a portfolio how many funds do you think it might be appropriate to own 
Oh, this is a fantastic question. Million dollar question, but also incredibly difficult. Very subjective to answer. Um, I mean, it's important to consider because particularly with funds, you know, even a concentrated active fund will hold often around 20, 30 holdings or more. So it's very easy to over diversify and also rack up lots of fund fees. Um, but to try and answer your question, um, particularly if you're using passives, you could actually hold maybe even one or just a handful of funds. Um, mainstream passives will often hold hundreds, if not in some cases, thousands of shares, for example, in the equity space. So you do have a lot of diversification. Um, so you could either use, um, you know, one or two really broadly diversified funds like um, equi global equity funds, whether passive or active, um, or you could pick a handful of different regional funds, particularly with passives, because you are getting a good spread. Um, when it comes to, I suppose, more targeted funds, so for example, active funds that are fairly concentrated, you can run that number a fair bit higher. Um, you could go maybe, some people might say around 10 to 15. But I think you need to be careful not to create too much overlap, not to load up too many fund fees, and also just to build a portfolio that you can um, effectively monitor and you know keep tabs on. Um, so if you want to be less involved, you probably want fewer holdings. Um, yeah, everyone has different answers to this question, but one useful approach might be to do what's called um, core and satellite investing. So you could use one or two fairly broad um, base holdings. They will make up most of your assets. And there I'm talking about things like global equity funds or even multi-asset funds. They will form most of your exposure. And then you can use what's called satellite holdings. You know, if you see an interesting theme, if you see something that's not really covered in your core holdings, you can just sort of tack on some smaller holdings to try and cover all the bases. Yes, core and satellites, uh, it's a great and an interesting approach. Um, Daniela, taking that to its next level, if you're interested in stock picking, um, and that's what you're learning about, but you also want core exposure and a diversified portfolio, how might you approach constructing a portfolio? Yeah, I think the approach that Dave was just talking about, you want to have your core investments there. You want to have exposure to the core markets and you can do that via ETFs or, you know, all these funds. Also, you might want to have your your big value stocks in there. So you want those stocks that offer, throughout the, their time, they offer great earnings and they might not be the biggest growth, but they're, they're quite stable and they're usually quite well performing in terms of different adverse market events. So you might want to have a bit of your investment parked into those. And then you just want to find what other investments suit you. And then you can go more down the riskier route if you suddenly see a sector that you're interested in, or if you see a performance that you're interested, in, then you can kind of take the rest of your investment and try different themes there. But you do want to keep at least some of your investment some some of your portfolio invested in those those benchmarks and those big players in the market that you know are generally going to offer quite a stable and, and safer performance, I guess. So we've talked quite a lot about how you can set up your own portfolio. Um, but if you don't want to make the investment decisions yourself, you can always pay up for a robo-advisor. Dave, what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of robo-advice? Yeah, it's an interesting topic. So I suppose on the positive side, um, robos will basically give you a set portfolio um, depending on your attitude to risk, which is often established via you answering certain set questions. Um, on the pro side, it's fantastic for simplicity. 
you know, if you want a diversified portfolio without the hassle, then robos will give you a broad mix of holdings and that should hopefully kind of capture market returns but also help you ride the ups and downs. But there are some important criticisms to bear in mind. Um, so firstly, critics argue that they can look pretty expensive. Um, so one name, the kind of leader in the market, Nutmeg, has sometimes been criticised for its charges. Um, I had a brief look today, and they can range from 0.71% to around 1%, depending on what level of service you go for. So it is worth looking at how the total cost of investing with a robo-advisor would compare with if you, for example, picked a couple of trackers using a platform and see what's giving you the kind of best value there. Um, but there, there are also some interesting criticisms that are perhaps less widely considered. So if you're young and you just want to invest your money somewhere and forget about it, then really the best thing to do, as we've discussed, is to embrace risk. Um, you want to be quite heavily in things like equities and other so-called risk assets and not so much in kind of defensive things like bonds. Um, a problem that can crop up sometimes with robo-advisors is, as I said, often they will ask questions to establish your, your risk profile and then stick you in a portfolio based on the answers. Um, some people may, and I, I've heard some stories of this myself, you know, some people may instinctively give more conservative answers about things like, you know, what's your attitude to potential losses? And they may actually effectively end up with a more cautious portfolio than what's suited to them. So even if they can ride the ups and downs, then they may end up heavily in things like government bonds, and they're therefore not growing their money enough, and they're missing out on some some really good returns. So that's worth bearing in mind. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Thank you. Um, another decision you've got to make when you're setting up a portfolio is how often to pay into it. Setting up a direct debit can be a good discipline, although this can be tricky if your work is freelance and you're not paid in regular chunks. Daniela, a big advantage of paying in regularly is that you can benefit from pound cost averaging. Please, can you explain how this works? Yeah, so pound cost averaging is usually used as a risk management tool. So to give an example, and it's probably the best way to understand it, let's say you inherit a big chunk of money suddenly um, and you're, you know, you're questioning yourself, do I invest it all in once or do I average it out? And the thing with um, averaging out the investment is that you can potentially reduce the risk if there's a big market move that you weren't anticipating. So let's say you invest it all at once and then suddenly the market moves against you, you know, you see it all drop. So if you hadn't done it all at once and you'd start at the beginning, then the return or the loss, I guess, you would take because you've averaged out the the investment would be lesser than if you'd done it all at once. So essentially what you're doing is you could potentially invest a bit of the beginning. If the market moves against you, you can then invest at that lower level. So you are basically averaging out the cost of your investment. So again, the flip side to that is you could potentially be missing out on moves that would favour you. So let's say it was the other way around, you put it all at the beginning, there's a big market move in, in favour of you, you've made a greater return than let's say you'd only invest a part of it. And then you're left investing the rest of it at a higher rate, essentially, or waiting for that to come back down. And therefore, you've lost that potential return over that time. So it's just a way of um, deciding when you want to invest it in What's the risk you want to take with put it, putting it all in at the same time? Or do you want to wait and see how the market moves before deciding how to invest the rest of it? And that's essentially how you're averaging out your costs through time rather than just having that set fixed cost at the beginning. Yeah. And we, we spoke about the power of compounding in the previous podcast um, and how it can grow your wealth. But this is also a really important reason to keep costs down. Dave, you mentioned um, costs 
briefly earlier, but do you have any guidance on what's a reasonable amount to pay specifically for a fund? Yeah, so it can really vary depending on the kind of funds that you go for. So um, as you say, I, I did mention earlier that passive funds in established markets like the FTSE 100 or S&P 500, they really shouldn't be charging you more than 0.1%. Um, more targeted names, for example, thematic names and more niche markets, they may charge a bit higher. Um, with active funds, it can really vary quite wildly. Um, some names will now charge relatively low fees. There are some big names that charge around something like 0.4% or so in, in the equity space. But fees, again, they get much steeper the more specialist you go. If you go to more niche markets, um, a niche equity fund might charge you around 1%. And then if we discuss funds in areas like private equity, infrastructure and other so-called alternative asset classes, um, they can end up charging a lot more. And they can also sometimes leverage um, performance fees if they're doing especially well. So fees are, you know, it's really worth kind of carefully considering how much you're, you're paying up. Having said that, I would make the case that in the active space, fees can sometimes be a bit of a red herring. Um, plenty of people will disagree with me quite strongly, but I'd make the case that what's most important here is that the fund is doing its job, it's doing what you want for it, whether that's limiting your losses in a bad time for markets or whether it's consistently beating the market over a decent period of time. Um, for example, you know, some of the private equity investment trusts have charged big fees, but they've also given investors really large gains um, in the past. So it's worth kind of keeping your eye on what the fund is actually doing. Yeah, that's a very fair point. I think the final um, point that I'd like to touch on in this podcast is how you monitor your portfolio. So you've bought your, your first set of um, funds and ETFs. Daniela, do you have any advice on a sensible strategy for monitoring? Um, yeah, I think one of the first rules is leave your emotions at the door. <laughs> I think that's very important because sometimes when things go against you or even when things go in your favour, you can get disappointed or excited to the point where you sometimes act in the spur of the moment without actually thinking about, you know, what was your investment strategy? And I think the key point of investing is to have a strategy and a plan from the beginning and to maybe sometimes it's just best not to look at it too often if you are one of those people that gets a bit nervous about you know certain returns or, or losses um but I think it's definitely you know every time you are looking at your funds just keep your strategy in mind and yes sometimes you'll have to adjust or deviate from your initial strategy because xyz would have happened but I think it's always important to analyze what the end goal is and if you are deviating from your strategy you've got to then come up with a new strategy. Why am I doing this? You know, and and what's my goal with this? So I think it's 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 active monitoring, but trying not to overcrowd too much your investment and trying to, you know, I guess trust your gut and you know the reason why you invested in the beginning was because you had a plan. And if you find out later on that plan wasn't the right one, it's fine. But just you know, whatever change you do, then do it with a new strategy in place. And I think that that's the key to investing, trying to be as less irrational as possible or erratic, basically. Great. Thank you. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. But thank you so much, Daniela. And thank you, Dave. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And please do join us next week when we'll dig in further to the world of funds. <laughs>